Right, good morning. Glad to see you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. Those of you who are new with us this morning, you should know that we make it our habit here at Free Money Free to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse. And the reason we do that is we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so this morning, that means that we have landed in Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. Let me pray, and we'll get to it. Uh, Father, we do pray this morning that we would have humility as we come to your Word. We pray that we would delight in what your Word teaches us, that we would see it as good and holy and right and pure. Father, we know that our hearts are easily distracted, that we are easily yeah, easily prone to wander, that we uh, think about things that are going on in the world, or we think about troubles that have come our way, or we think about relational difficulties that we're experiencing, and it just takes our eyes off of the cross. And so we pray this morning that you would fix our eyes back on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. We pray that as we turn our attention to your word, that you would challenge us through your word, that you would convict us through your word, that you would rebuke us if necessary. But at the end of the day, we pray that we would grow in our love for Jesus. And so Lord, please be merciful to us this morning. We know that we're easily distracted, but we also know that we desperately need to hear your word. And so we pray that your spirit would help us cut through the distractions and help us to hear clearly from Philippians chapter 4. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen. So I had a professor, a professor in seminary who was a gifted communicator and an entertaining teacher. His classes were never boring. The material he presented was almost always interesting and usually thought-provoking. On top of that, he was theologically astute. He had a ton of experience in the mission field. He was well-connected in church circles. In short, he was the type of guy who seemed to have it all together. Good theology, good experience in ministry, gifted communicator. But apparently it was all facade. Years after I graduated from seminary, news broke that the professor had been involved in a decade-long sexual abuse scandal. It was disturbing and disheartening news, to say the least. How could a man who claimed to know so much about Jesus act in a way that was completely contrary to Jesus' teaching? How could he stand up in class and implore us to pursue Christ more or to make Christ known while all the while he was living the secret life of an abuser? How's that even possible? the time when I first heard the news, I was both disgusted and shocked. But as I look back now, years later, with the benefit of having more experience under my belt, I guess I'm not as shocked as I once was. I'm still disgusted completely. But in retrospect, I can't say I'm completely surprised. Because the sad truth is that my professor is just one leader in a long line of prominent Christian leaders who've been caught up in moral scandal over the years. I'm sure you've seen the headlines or heard the stories. In many cases, I would guess the headlines you saw involved someone that you knew or heard of, or maybe even someone that you respected. And yet there they were in the headlines because of a gross moral failure. It's incredibly sad and heartbreaking, even infuriating that such headlines occur and sadly will continue to do so. But as much as those headlines are discouraging, I think they also serve as a warning and a reminder to us. Just because you know the right answers... And just because you have good theology doesn't mean you're actually following Christ. It's possible all of your theological ducks can be in a row, and yet your life can be still a complete train wreck spiritually. Because real Christianity is not just about knowing the right answers, or saying the right things, or checking the boxes of religious duty. Real Christianity is lived out in the day-to-day. -day. It's about following Jesus, even when it's hard. It's about seeing other people and caring for them and loving them because Christ first loved us. And it's about looking at the world through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done. In short, Christianity is lived out in the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. 
I think that reality is reflected in the final chapter of the book of Philippians. As Paul gives his final instructions to the Philippians, he doesn't just focus exclusively on theological truths. Although anyone who's read Paul in the New Testament knows he cares deeply about theology, that's not his exclusive focus. Nor as he's giving his final instructions, does he simply tell the Philippians, pray more, read your Bible more, study the scriptures more. Although he clearly values those things too, as evidenced by even some of the things he says in this chapter. But again, that's not his exclusive focus. Instead, in his final instructions to the Philippians, he gives a lot of practical advice about living for Jesus in the day to day. He encourages them to press on in their faith, to see the world through the lens of their relationship with Christ. He talks about money and contentment and relationships. And in doing all that, he reminds us Christianity indeed is not just about knowing great theological truths or checking religious boxes. It's about living for Jesus in the day-to-day of life. And we see that not just in the totality of Paul's final instructions in chapter 4. We see it specifically in our passage today, Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. And so my goal this morning, in light of what we read here in Philippians 4, is to simply encourage you to live for Jesus in the nitty-gritty details of everyday life to press on in following Jesus even when it's hard, to love other people, and to see the world and others through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that said, let's stand here. Philippians 4, 1 to 3. By the way, if you think we stand too much, this is your week. Only three verses. You can make it. All right, Philippians 4, 1 to 3. The reason we're standing is out of reverence for the reading of God's word. Simple way to remind ourselves that it's God's word and do our attention. So Philippians 4, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 says this. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You may be seated. In the beginning of chapter 4, Paul does, and see, does indeed seem to transition to his final instructions. It's evident in the language he uses in verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, verse 1 serves as a transitional statement, connecting us backwards to previous chapters. Hence the use of therefore, while also functioning as a forward-looking statement, giving us a preview of what's coming in chapter 4. In other words, verse 1 is a general statement that helps tie the previous chapter to what's coming. And then after that general statement, Paul starts to get into the details of where he's headed in chapter 4. He gives some very specific instructions beginning in verse 2. Verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now in the scope of Paul's writings in the New Testament, you should understand something. Verse 2 is very unique. Paul rarely names names as it relates to specific issues and conflicts occurring in the church. Now, in his introduction, his final greetings, sometimes even in the body of the letter, he'll mention co-workers in the gospel or traveling companions. He might even commend them as he does Epaphroditus and Timothy earlier in this book. But to name the names of those who are in conflict and to implore them personally to make changes is very unusual for Paul. And yet that's exactly what he does here. He names names. He entreats Eodia and he entreats Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we know very little about Iodias and Syntyche other than what we read in this passage. And what we know from this passage is that they are two women who served side by side with Paul as he was seeking to advance the gospel. And apparently, they were in disagreement about something. Now, again, we don't know exactly what they were disagreeing about. It seems unlikely it's a major theological issue. If so, Paul probably would have weighed in as he does for other theological disputes that are happening in the New Testament. 
It also seems unlikely there was some sort of major moral dispute, as Paul likely would have weighed in there too. So whatever the issue was, it wasn't significant enough that Paul felt the need to address the issue. But their dispute was significant enough that Paul felt the need to mention them by name and encourage them to get along. Now the word that's used for ver- in verse 2 for agree is the same Greek word that was used back in chapter 2, verse 5. And Paul told the Philippians to have the same mind, that's the word agree there, have the same mind among themselves. In that verse, Paul implored the Philippians to have the same mindset as Jesus, to look not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. So in using that same language here in chapter 4, it would seem that what Paul is doing is encouraging Yodi and Syntyche to actually live out what chapter 2 talked about, to set aside their own interest and look to the interests of the other, and to do so because of their love for Christ. Now it's worth noting, Paul doesn't just encourage Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. He also encourages others in the body of Christ to come alongside them and help them to find a place of agreement. Verse 3, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, much as we know very little about Yodi and Syntyche, we also have no idea who the true companion is mentioned in verse 3. The Greek word for true companion is actually the word syzygous, which some have suggested is an actual name of an actual person. That seems unlikely, though, because we have no evidence that syzygous was a name that was used in the ancient Greco-Roman world. It's possible it's a specific person, but it seems unlikely. Now, others have speculated that perhaps the true companion here is Luke or some other traveling companion of Paul, but again, we don't know. All we know is that Paul encourages this someone, this true companion, to help Yodi and Satiki to agree in the Lord. Now, what we do know, and what's very evident in verse 3, is that Paul cares very much about these two women. They've labored with him side by side in the gospel. He sees them as fellow workers, and he wants their dispute to be resolved, which is why he pleads with this true companion, assist them, help them to come to a place of agreement. So that's the basic summary of the passage here. A broad, general, transitional statement in verse 1, followed by a very specific situation with very specific commands in verses 2 and 3. Now, I'm thinking about verses 1 and 3 as a whole. I think it's pretty obvious here. Paul is convinced that Christianity is lived out in the day-to-day. Christianity is not just lived out in writing theological position papers or reading theological textbooks. It's not just lived out in checking religious boxes of duty. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. No, it's lived out in day-to-day stuff. Standing firm in your faith, even when it's hard. Loving others in the body of Christ. Seeing the world and other people through the lens of what Jesus has done. And in that, I think Philippians 4, 1-3 challenges us to think differently about how we might live in the day-to-day. Paul may be addressing a very specific situation in verses 2 and 3. And he may give a general broad statement in verse 1. But in both the broad statement of verse 1 and the specific situation of verses 2 and 3, I think he's implicitly challenging us to think and live differently on a day-to-day basis. More specifically, I think there are three challenges from this passage for us. Challenge number one, stand firm. Stand firm. Again, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, as always, the question to ask when we see a therefore is, what's the therefore therefore? And in this case, I think Paul is pointing us generally back to the content of the first three chapters, but specifically to the content that comes right before verse 1. I'm talking about verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. So let's go back here. Chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, our passage from last week. 
Remember, Paul says this in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Then right after that, you find the word therefore. So I think what Paul's saying is this, because our citizenship is in heaven, and because we're awaiting a Savior who will transform our bodies, we should stand firm. In other words, the reason why we should be willing to put up with earthly difficulty, the reason why we should be willing to endure persecution and mocking for the sake of Jesus, and the reason why we should stand firm in our faith even when it's hard, is simply because we know what happens here on earth is not the end of the story. We know that our citizenship and our future and our hope is elsewhere. When Jim Elliott and his fellow missionaries went to the Ecuadorian jungle in 1956 and attempt to evangelize the Waroni people, they knew there was a very real possibility that they would face danger and maybe even death. And indeed, they did face those things. As you may know, Elliot, along with his four co-workers in the gospel, were speared to death. At the time of his death, Jim Elliot was 29 years old. He left behind a wife and a young daughter. In retrospect, you might ask the question, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it worth standing firm in his faith at the cost of his life? Was it worth risking everything, leaving behind a wife and a young daughter, just so others could hear about Jesus? I think Eliot's own words answer the question. As Eliot wrote in his journal years before his martyrdom, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To follow Christ may mean that we lose things that we lose out on anyway eventually. It may mean that we lose our earthly comfort. It may mean that we lose our earthly material goods and money. It might mean that we lose our freedom here. It might even mean eventually we lose our lives. But what we get in return, citizenship in heaven, a new and glorious body, eternity with Jesus is worth it because those things cannot be taken. It can't be taken. Listen, I don't know that any of you in this room are called to go to the jungles of Ecuador or some other difficult location for the sake of Christ. Maybe you are. And if God is calling you, let me encourage you, go. And as you go, we will rejoice with you, and we will pray with you, and we will stand with you and pray that you would be able to stand firm also. But even if you're not called to go to the jungles of Ecuador or some other exotic location, every person in this room who claims to be a follower of Christ is called to stand firm. And while that may not mean being martyred at the end of a spear, it does mean that we're called to endure and persevere and hold fast to Christ even when it's hard. And hear me, sometimes it will be hard. Sometimes it'll be hard to hold fast to our faith because the world around us is obviously moving in the opposite direction. They're trying to convince us the Bible's not trustworthy. Or they're trying to convince us that the Bible doesn't really say what it obviously does say. And they'll try to pressure us and cause us to renounce what the Bible says so that, that we can join in the crowd and we can have their approval. And in those moments, we'll have to decide, will we stand firm? But sometimes it'll be hard to hold fast to our faith because the difficulty of life will close in on us personally. And as we deal with sickness or death or relational brokenness, we may start to wonder, where's God and why isn't he answering? And in those moments, we'll have to decide, will we stand firm? Other times it'll be hard, hard to hold fast to our faith because the lure of sin will seem so strong. 
want to give in to our sexual desires or into our greed or into our selfishness because at, at the time, sin will seem so attractive. And in those moments, we'll have to decide, will we stand firm? As we discussed back in chapter 1, the language of standing firm implies opposition. And hear me, the opposition we face as Christians is real. It comes in the form of persecution. It comes in the form of circumstances. It comes in the form of temptation. But if the gospel message is true, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and if he rose three days later, and if he secured our future inheritance, and if our citizenship is in heaven, and if we really are awaiting a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies, and if we have the Spirit indwelling us, then we have every tool that we could possibly need to stand firm and to be able to say against opposition, here we stand, we can do no other. Listen, church, I don't know what troubles you might be facing currently. I suspect some of you are facing some serious ones. And I certainly do not know what troubles might come your way. But I do know that trouble will come. In fact, Jesus told us as much in John 16. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But what I also know is that in light of our future hope, we can have the courage to stand firm, to stand against the opposition and hold our ground, to stand on the word of God and the message of Jesus Christ and say, here we are. We're not going anywhere. Because if we have the spirit, that's possible. And indeed, that's what Paul is challenging us to do here in the book of Philippians, to stand firm. That's challenge number one. Challenge number two, pursue unity and right relationships. Now, those two are not disconnected. Again, I think verse 1 is a transitional verse pointing backward to the content of the previous chapters, but also pointing forward to the rest of chapter 4. And thus, one of the ways that we stand firm and one of the ways that we live out our Christian faith is by pursuing unity and right relationships in the body of Christ. And the reason I say that is because because of what immediately follows in verses 2 and 3. Look at verses 2 and 3 here again. Keep in mind it's coming right after he implores them in verse 1 to stand firm. Verse 2, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So again, verse 1, stand firm. Next verse, I implore Eodia, I implore Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now those two verses are not disconnected. Standing firm in the Lord and having right relationships in the body of Christ go together. Now that's a challenge for us to believe because as Americans, we tend to think that Christianity is an individual sport. We tend to think it's about a personal relationship with Christ. And obviously there is a personal element to our relationship with Christ. But as we've said before, and no doubt we'll say again, Christianity is a team sport. We are meant to live life together. We are to function together and build one another up. And thus, when there's disagreement and dispute and disunity in the body of Christ, the team becomes more vulnerable. and We become less beautiful to the world around us. Hence the need here to pursue unity and right relationships in the body of Christ. In Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus says something really interesting. In that passage, he tells his audience, if they're offering a gift at the altar, in other words, they're bringing something to God, they're offering a sacrifice, they're offering a gift, and they remember as they're bringing the gift that a brother has something against them. Jesus says they should leave their gift at the altar, come back to that later, instead go be reconciled to the brother first, and then come and offer the gift. Now what's interesting about that is that's not usually the way we handle conflicts in the church. Our tendency 
is to badmouth the person we're in conflict with or gossip about them or just avoid them altogether rather than doing the hard work of reconciliation. Rather than leaving our gift at the altar and making an attempt to reconcile, we just avoid the issue or we talk poorly about the person we're in conflict with. But clearly that perspective is not biblical. As evidenced by Matthew 5 and here in Philippians 4, unity and right relationships in the church are crucial to the overall health of the body and thus need to be pursued. Now, let me make a little caveat here. I'm not saying we need to have a big, a big reconciliation talk every time someone offends us. Sometimes we just need to overlook an offense. And sometimes we just need to extend grace. If you find yourself getting offended all the time, it's possible the issue is not with other people but with you. You're too critical, and you do not understand the grace you've received in Christ. And if that's the case, you need to remind yourself of how gracious God has been to you by sending Christ to die on the cross for your sin. So hear me, when I talk about a need for reconciliation, I'm not talking about being overly sensitive here or litigating every last thing that is said or done. But having said that, there are legitimate disputes that can arise in a church body. And as much as possible, we should seek reconciliation. By the way, I think I should add this too. Reconciliation does not mean that I get to win the argument. It does not mean that I get to prove that I was right and you were wrong. Reconciliation means we come to a place where we agree. We may have disagreements here, but we're united together by our common love for Jesus Christ. And to get to that place means that we're going to have to humble ourselves and submit to Scripture. To that point, I think author D.A. Carson is again very helpful and worth quoting at length here. Carson says, in reference to this passage, I'm quoting here, some honest differences of opinion among genuine believers could be resolved if they would take their time to sort out why they are looking at things differently, and if they would take their views and attitudes and submit them afresh self-critically to the scriptures. But many disputes will not be resolved, because those who are quarreling will neither take the time nor deploy the energy to study the scriptures together. In some cases, neither side wants to be corrected or sharpened, both sides are so convinced that they are right that mere facts will not correct them, and in any case, all they want to do is win. Carson continues, Where there are disagreements of principle, argue them out. Take out your Bibles, think things through, find out why you're disagreeing, and be willing to be corrected. Listen, as followers of Christ, our goal is not to win arguments. Our, not, our goal is not always to be right. Our goal is to honor Jesus. And one of the ways we do that is by pursuing unity in the body of Christ and doing so by humbly submitting to Scripture. So friends, let me encourage you this morning. If there's someone in the church that you're at odds with, or another Christian that maybe doesn't go here that you're at odds with, I think it's worth asking, what might the Lord have you do to seek reconciliation? Now hear me, sometimes I understand the person that you need to be reconciled with doesn't want reconciliation. They don't want peace. In those cases, you can only do what you can do. Our responsibility is to live at peace with all people as much as it's possible for us. And so if the person we're at odds with doesn't want reconciliation, that's on them. But sometimes the reason why we haven't been reconciled is because, quite frankly, we haven't tried. And that's where Paul's words are challenging. He says, I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. Now what's interesting is that he says it to both of them. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche. In other words, this is both of your issue. I'm encouraging both of you that you need to come to a place where you agree in the Lord. I entreat Eodia, 
and I entreat in sickness. By the way, this phrase, in the Lord, is really important as well. It's because we're in Christ, and it's because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's because we're fellow heirs in Christ that we should want reconciliation. It's our common love for Jesus that gives us a desire for unity. Now hear this, the fact is there may be real disagreements in the church. We may disagree about how to do ministry, or we may agree about, or disagree about certain political things, or maybe we disagree about the best way to handle this situation or that situation. But if we are in Christ, what we can agree about is this. We are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. And we love Jesus. And because we love Jesus, we should want to pursue unity with others in the body of Christ. It doesn't mean we agree on every last point, but it does mean that we can agree on the most important thing, and this is what enables us to still love each other. We should pursue unity in the body of Christ because of our love for Christ. And furthermore, we should have a desire to help others pursue unity in the body of Christ too. And that's one of the interesting things about Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. It's not just that Paul tells Yodia and Syntyche to agree. He also encourages the mysterious true companion to help the women agree in the Lord. And in that is an important reminder for us. We shouldn't just be committed to pursuing unity and right relationships in our own lives. We should be committed to helping others pursue unity and right relationships in the body of Christ also. And to that end, here's another question for you. When a friend comes to you and they complain about someone else in the church, is your tendency to simply nod and listen as they complain? Maybe join in the gossip? Or is your tendency to take the biblical approach? To encourage your friend to seek unity by either setting aside the issue or seeking reconciliation. As evidenced by Paul's challenge to the true companion in verse 3, a lack of unity between two people in the church is a threat to the whole body. It's a corporate issue. And so not only should we seek personal reconciliation, although we obviously should, we should also do our best to be agents of unity, seeking reconciliation and forgiveness for others in the body of Christ. Now, admittedly, figuring out how to do this is sometimes really hard. And that's where we have to pray. Spirit, give us wisdom. Help us to figure out how we can help in this situation. But the point is we should be motivated to do so because we love Jesus and because we love his people too. Now, let me just be honest here. The church is messed up, and the church will hurt you. But it is still the body of Christ and the bride of Christ. And that should absolutely affect the way we think about the church. I've used this example before, but I'll use it again. If you came up to me and you said, I think you're awesome, and I want to be best friends, but I hate your wife, and I think she's dumb, I wouldn't think, I bet we will be good friends because you think I'm awesome. No, instead I would think, how could you talk about my bride that way and think we could still be friends? How you talk about my bride matters. And in the same way, we need to remember that the church with all of its warts, and hear me, it has plenty. It's still the bride of Christ. And we should view other Christians through that lens. In fact, that brings us to the third challenge, the implied challenge here that comes with Paul's words, and that's this, that we need to learn to see others through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the most striking things about this passage, and one of the things that sticks out to you if you read the passage over and over and over again, is the way Paul talks about his fellow believers in verses 1 to 3. In fact, listen again to verse 1, and listen to the way he describes the Philippian believers. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, in verse 1, if you're keeping score, Paul gives one short command, and he sandwiches it with six terms of endearment. 
My brothers, those whom I love, those whom I long for, my joy, my crown, my beloved. Multiple commentators have pointed out how awkward this sentence structure is in the Greek because there are so many terms of endearment in just one short command. But the fact that Paul speaks so awkwardly here and loads so many terms into one command gives us insight into the way he viewed his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And the way he talks about Yodi and Syntyche gives us insight also. Verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, I treat Yodi and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Now, what's interesting about verses 2 and 3 is the Yodians and Tiki are clearly not getting along. Obviously, there's an issue between them. And yet, Paul addresses them very tenderly. He doesn't say to them, get along, you morons. That's not what he says. Instead, he describes them as those who labored side by side in the gospel, fellow workers. He even says their names are written in the book of life. In other words, he doesn't see them through the lens of their problems. He sees them through the lens of what Jesus has done. And in that language, and in the description of verse 1, it seems pretty obvious. Paul saw his brothers and sisters in Christ through the lens of the gospel. He didn't just see them as people or as those who needed rebuked. He saw them through the lens of what Christ had done and what Christ was doing. He saw them as brothers and sisters, fellow workers, beloved friends, and fellow heirs of eternal life. Now again, my question for you this morning is, is that how you see other Christians? Or instead, you look at other people in the church and see them as annoyances or obstacles to overcome flawed people. Or maybe to say it more simply, do you see other Christians through the lens of the gospel or through the lens of the world? We should see them for who they are, which is they belong to Christ. During my college years, I worked at a Christian camp one summer, and one of our campers was the son of a famous professional athlete. His dad was actually really well known at the time, and everybody at camp was well aware of who this guy's dad was. And I'm just telling you, they treated the kid differently. Everybody wanted to be friends with this kid, because he was the son of a famous athlete. Everybody wanted to be nice to him. Everybody wanted to be liked by him. Now, I'm not necessarily, I'm not necessarily saying that was a good thing. I don't even know that he liked it. But I'm just telling you, as the son of someone famous, he got treated differently. But here's the thing. If from a worldly perspective, we treat people differently based on their family lineage, how could we not take into account that our fellow Christians and members of the body of Christ are sons and daughters of the King? Now, I understand people in the church do dumb things. For the record, I do dumb things. I understand that sometimes Christians are hypocrites. For the record, I'm a hypocrite. I also understand that sometimes Christians hurt us. And for the record, I've hurt other people. But let us never forget that our true identity is found in Jesus Christ. And let us never forget the true identity of our fellow church members. They are sons and daughters of the King, fellow partners in the gospel. Their names are written in the book of life. I think it's imperative that we see them that way. If you're more aware of other Christians' flaws than you are aware of their status as a child of God, something's amiss. If you insist on keeping a record of wrongs, a book of a record of wrongs about other Christians, while all the while God has written their name in the book of life, perhaps you're keeping the right, wrong type of book. Because we should see fellow Christians through the lens of what Jesus has done. And listen, we need to learn to see ourselves through that lens too. Recently, Steve Walters, who's a member here at this church, pointed me to a passage in Luke 10, in which the disciples came back rejoicing because the, the demons had been cast out. And Jesus tells them in Luke 10, don't rejoice that you've cast out the demons. 
Instead, rejoice that your name's written in the book of life. From that passage, Steve simply reminded me, if our name's written in the book of life, it doesn't matter what we accomplish. It doesn't matter what people think about us. The most important thing about us is simply that we'll be with him. And we'll be with him forever because our names are written in that book. For the sake of our identity, we need to remember that. But we also need to remember that about our fellow Christians. We need to see them through the lens of the gospel. Just like Paul saw the Philippians through the lens of what Christ had done as well. That's yet another challenge of this passage, to see others through the lens of what Jesus has done. And as a whole, I think the overall challenge of this passage is to realize that Christianity is indeed lived out in the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. It's not our theological doctrine alone that matters, although it does. It's not our willingness to fulfill religious duties that matters, although those things are good too. But are we living for Jesus in the day-to-day? Are we following Jesus even when it's hard? Are we seeking to be at unity and in right relationship with others in the body of Christ? Are we seeing other people through the lens of what Christ has done and treating them accordingly? That's where the battle for Christianity is won and lost. In the nitty-gritty details of everyday life. So church, let's be people who live for Christ in the big things, but also for Christ in the day-to-day small things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the reminder here that we have in Philippians 4 that Christianity is to be lived out in day-to-day stuff. It's to be lived out in our perseverance in the faith. It's to be lived out in loving others and seeking to be in right relationship with others in the body of Christ. And, Lord, it's also to be lived out in seeing others through the lens of what Jesus has done. Father, if there are any in here this morning who feel like they are at odds with someone else in the church, I pray that you would use this passage as an encouragement to them to seek reconciliation. I think of Paul's entreaty to Yodi and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And I pray that that entreaty would also challenge us to think about our relationships and how we can be at right relationship with others as well. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.